0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: The following program has been brought to you by Rolling Press, a family-run, eco-friendly printing company. For more information, visit rollingpress.com.
2: Hi, this is Celia Cutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hey, hey, you're listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kathy Irway. And we're gathered round here, <laughs> quite a party at Roberta's Pizza, as usual. And um, I have author Suzanne Cope joining us. How are you? I'm great. So excited like to be here. So, Suzanne, you're a food writer. You've written for Edible Everything, Edible Boston, <laughs> Edible Cape Cod, and you're a writing professor at Manhattan College. Um, and this is your first book. It's called Small Batch, Pickles, Cheese, Chocolate, Spirits, and the Return of Artisanal Foods. Um, and you interviewed folks from around the country to do this book in pickles, cheese, chocolate, and artisanal uh, foods. But a few of the folks that you did not interview, we brought on air as well. So just want to briefly introduce um, who are you, young lady? <laughs> I am Lena McCarthy. I own Anarchy in a
3: Jar. We make mustard and jam. Excellent.
1: Hi, I'm uh, Brian Ballin, uh, half of A&B American Style, and we make all-natural pepper sauces from fresh uh, fresh chili peppers.
2: From Brooklyn Grange Farm, right? Oh, right? Or something.
1: Absolutely. It's so
2: delicious. Okay,
4: and? My name is Marissa Wu, and I'm the owner of um, Salty Road. We make saltwater taffy, the and only th- makers in New York City.
2: You're the what? On-
4: the only saltwater taffy makers in New York City.
2: Well, we have so much saltwater, I don't get it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> I'm about to bite into one of Marissa's taffies. They're actually really, really good. Um, and one of the things, I mean, you explore in this book, Suzanne, is that these craft foods are just really good. And there's something that you can't get everywhere. Um, something, you know, like Lena, you, we have jam. We've seen jam smuckers and we've seen Tabasco sauce, sure. Uh, Laffy Taffy. Um, what do you think makes this food movement so unique?
5: Well, what I thought was so interesting is that I, I thought it'd be so easy, oh, I'm going to interview all these people, and obvi- obviously everyone knows that there's a ton of um, new cheese people, and, and a lot of new spirits distillers, but then I realized that so many of these people were, um, they were regional, and it was easier for me, living in Brooklyn, um, and I was living in Boston for part of the research, too, to find the people who were close by, but then when I wanted to do some research across the country, I found that um, it was a lot harder to find these people. You can't just Google, um, you know, Google saltwater taffy or Google um, cheese and San Francisco and get uh, find out whether these people were really big in their neighborhoods Mm -hmm. um, and really popular. So I had to go and do um, some on the ground research, uh, you know, so sad. It was actually a ton of fun. (laughs) Sounds delicious. (laughs) And then I asked a lot of my friends, of course, I have a lot of friends who are into the same things. And so they gave me the recommendations of the pickle makers that I should talk to in, you know, Northern California. And it was a a really great trip. And I I met people um, and and found products that I wouldn't have found just via the internet alone. Mm
2: -hmm. And is that why you decided to write this book? Because the they share a common theme, even though they're different regions, different specialties, different kinds of cheeses. Um, But you found a common.
5: I found um, what was so great is I I had these assumptions that I think so many other um, consumers. Thought about as well, where you just think, "Oh, here are these people just sitting at their, um, you know, in front of their sink or their stove, and they're just making things in their kitchen." It's like, no, of course not. These are really smart business people who were um, who were really passionate about a product and passionate about where it all came from, but then also smart about it, and they wanted to figure out a way to uh, make a business and, and maybe be their own boss and get it to the consumers who would really appreciate it, and also, uh, you know, for the most part the sourcing was a lot more um, environmentally sustainable as well. So, you know, just like using a local farm, which is so great, I found that, by and large, this new artisanal movement, it wasn't just, you know, wherever we could get the hot peppers, it was actually thinking about um, where they were coming from.
2: Absolutely. Um, I'm I, I know Something about what you just said made me look at uh, the saltwater taffy box from Marissa, Salty Roads uh, Box, and it says, I've come a long way from stretching taffy by hand in a tiny Brooklyn apartment um, It was love at first pull. Yeah. So my assumptions uh, are not that far off. But, but I thought <laughs> you were making an interesting face, uh, Marissa, when <laughs> Suzanne was saying something about smart business people.
4: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, I think I'm think i still learning a lot. Mm-hmm. I've learned a, a ton, but I still, like, every day I'm like, oh, my God, I have so yeah. much more.
2: Figuring it out as you go along. Yeah.
4: Well, Which, just because you're doing every single aspect of, of it. And then also learning to... to Stop doing that.
2: And you're a one-woman business, basically. Uh, Is that same for? Well, you have a partner, Brian, uh, in the the A to the B American style. Um, But was this a passion project, or were you like a totally conniving business? I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Um, Yeah. So I mean, we, you know, Ariel and I grew up together, really loving spicy foods. Um, And actually, in 2010, I was working in you know big. A bank, actually, in a corporate job, sort of seeing that a lot of people were getting disconnected from Mm -hmm. all the food. So, um, I actually left my job. I got a um, four days later. I I sort of had left the suit behind. I got a job at Budokan as a line cook. I worked there for a year specifically to learn all about great food. And then we, uh, you know, we worked a long time to develop the recipes that became A and B American style.
2: Absolutely wonderful. Congrats! And I know you were just talking a little bit off air about how you just started to do it seriously and because you left your other you left your day job to do this. So you're in it for the long run.
1: That it let's hope, yeah. yeah. we are trying to be as long as possible.
2: Congrats. Thank you very much. And uh Lainey, you're a little farther along I guess you've been running Anarchy in a jar for six years or mm-hmm. how long? Five yeah. years. Yep. Five years this last summer. So um
3: yeah and it's you know it's a steady growth. When I started the company I I was interested in running a business, but I also saw um at the time that I started my company, there was kind of a mini little explosion of small companies. So um, Brooklyn Brine and Ma- uh, Pickles and Mama O's Kimchi and PH and h Soda, um, Morris Kitchen Syrups, like all these. We all started the same summer, basically. Um, and partly the reason we all started, none of us knew each other. But there was a sudden more of a demand, especially around New York, for... Um, for food with a story, uh, mm-hmm. not just local, but interesting things that people were making. And um, and so I think we both, we all, all of these companies kind of filled um, that demand. So we met that demand. And then that really helped us because um, that demand was kind of across the board. So companies like Whole Foods, um, they also wanted to be more interesting. They didn't want to look the same as Walmart or any other company. And so... Um, the aid of grocery stores, the birth of things like Smorgasburg, which also came about from a demand that people wanted. And so all those things kind of happened and right. helped us all start our right. companies and keep our companies going. So
2: Because, I, I mean, imagine, you know, I recall when I was growing up, there was always like those small tinkers at the farmer's market selling their goat uh, butters and Products and small batch jams, too. But I really think that there's something um, that occurred with the demand and the awareness that you write about, Suzanne, um, that grew out of. I guess, the slow food movement. Um, Where does that all start, actually? I
5: I think that there are are a number of factors that that this movement is different than what we saw before. Part of it is that the people who are interested in making their own cheeses and jams and selling them, they kind of wanted to do it outside of the economy that we all participate in. You know, they they weren't really interested in saying, oh, let's get it into the grocery store for the most part. They were more interested in just um, living on their farm and maybe this is just an extra source of income. And then we have this new group of people like you guys And your stories are so they're they're classic. I mean, they're the exact stories I was hearing from all these artisans around the country. Um, You know, this idea of 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 finding this um, cooperative, I I call it actually, I didn't name it, but um, uh, Michaela Hayes of Crack and Jar Pickles, She called it coopetition, where all these people started at the same time, Mm -hmm. but um, they weren't in direct competition with each other they actually wanted to help each other out so maybe being the only um the only taffy person and that's that's your problem is that you don't have this cooperative group helping you uh, do you problems. see
2: coop op in your business um all of you Anyone?
3: Yeah, and I actually think that that should be your next book, Suzanne. <laughs> no, I'm serious about this because this is something that I gripe about to journalists all the time. And I'm always like, no one has written about this, as far as I'm aware. No one has ever really talked about the connections between companies. And I feel like I only exist because I have, like, I call them my, my comrades, <laughs> um, which, of course, you guys are all my comrades as well. But uh, uh you know, and like Marissa and I, we've like been next to each other at booths.
4: Smorgasburg. Yeah, at
3: Smorgasburg and markets, and like we help each other, you know, we help each other, we watch each other's booths, we, and like, you know, and I, especially the dudes like Seamus and Kitty, who does Mamos, like we, all needed each other we share information on like you know it started out as like oh my god who has a good accountant and now it's like you know who has a good distribution network oh you know what someone's not paying us let's like get on that and we actually work as like a team to keep to not only keep our network alive but to help each other so and i mean there is competition to a degree but i feel like actually we're all aware of the fact that like are, we need each other to survive. That's what I thought was so, so
5: cool. I, I was anticipating people saying, oh, there better not be another pickler because they're going to take my business. And Seamus said, no, he goes, nobody wants to be the only restaurant on the block. Yeah. You want there to be other people because just like you were saying, is this demand grew organically and the more people who are interested in it, the more they, A, appreciate how much work goes into these products mm-hmm. and B, they start to see that there is a real value in, in buying things that were locally sourced, sustainably sourced. Or, um, you know, if it's not local, just thinking about preserving traditions and, and ha- a handmade ethos and uh, way of produ- producing things, which I think is really important.
4: Yeah, I actually interned with Little Bit Sweets, which I guess would be somewhat of a competitor or something like Absolutely. that. And then I also interned with the Meat Hook and I worked at the Brooklyn Kitchen. And I feel like those all those relationships have helped me, like, immensely in um, – and growing the company and getting advice and having different perspectives, but people that are still in sort of. So the, it's a community. Totally. Yeah. yeah.
2: And it sounds like you encountered this, um, Suzanne, throughout your travels. Um,
5: the other place sp- that, um, that actually used the word cooperatition, although I like <laughs> coopetition better, um, where it was out in Portland, Oregon, of course, where they also mentioned that same kind of, uh, you know, community and ethos, specifically with the distillers, which I thought was really great. Distilleries are a huge
2: part of of this craft artisanal movement because, you know, that's just a product that wasn't really being made in an artisanal way, you know, for since, you know, prohibition. So that is a great example that you highlighted in this book. Um, What do you think it is about what do you think are some like the most quintessential hallmarks of an artisanal food?
5: You know, there. I was trying to. This actually, this book grew in part out of the fact that I'm sure we all experienced uh, people calling things artisanal, including Frito Lay's. It's, it's, it's a wishy-washy word. And I right? was so mad about that. And I just thought, wait a second, this. You know, you can't have an artisanal bun at Burger Kraft. King or whatever. Yeah, Doritos. <laughs> so I was so mad, and I thought I am going to. I'm in a position where I am going to define this term, and hmm. I'm going to define it by talking to a bunch of people who consider themselves artisanal, and, and maybe this is somewhat self-selecting. I also thought of them as being artisanal in one way or the other, and and kind of. I don't want to say crowdsourced because it was a more um, academic uh, approach, but you know, figure out through the words of other people how they define this term, and so um, some of the commonalities. I found are, are exactly what you're hearing from you guys: uh, the fact that people wanted to do something with their hands, wanted to be more involved with the food system, wanted to be more thoughtful about the raw materials and also, um, you know, the the finished goods, and um, and this idea of community. People, for the most part, these artisans they wanted to serve their immediate community first. They weren't, um, of course. I'm sure all of you guys would be happy if you had national distribution, but you know, not not saying well, national distribution know. is the what? first goal. Yeah, maybe. Maybe not. I found actually a mix of people saying, I'm perfectly happy selling within a couple hundred miles. Oh. Um, and so that idea of serving the immediate community um, and then maybe thinking about expansion, but being very thoughtful about expansion and still staying within these larger uh, mission of of being... Um, you know, community minded and more environmentally sustainable. That's certainly, those are it all commonalities. It sounds easier
2: said than done, for sure. Let's talk a little bit about more your journeys and um, the challenges um, as we come back to this program after a quick little commercial interlude.
3: to Trial and Error by Snowmine.
0: Thank you for reason to stay to stay. I could have gone home with presses just how it is. Thank you for decide sign it should go
1: with these Today's program was brought to you by Rolling Press. Rolling Press is a family-run digital and offset print house that brings together eco-friendly methods, ethical practices, and personalized service. Using environmentally responsible papers, non-toxic inks, and wind power, Rolling Press represents the harmony of traditional craftsmanship and mindful sustainability. Rolling Press offers advice on reducing paper waste and energy consumption, helping you save money and minimize your carbon footprint. For more information, visit rollingpress.com.
4: Hey, my name is Betsy Andrews, executive editor of Severa Magazine, and I am hanging out at the coolest, most delicious place in the world, heritageradionetwork.org.
2: All right, we're back chatting more with Suzanne Cope, author of Small Batch Pickles, Cheese, Chocolate, Spirits, and the Return of Artisanal Foods and a round table of artisanal food makers. Um, So we were talking a little bit about defining the word artisanal. um, but Suzanne, you also write that Many other uh, colliding values um, go into the, you know, small batch, artisanal, I think, is one thing. But as it happens, this new generation shares a lot of values which have to do with natural, um, slow, local. Um, And let's talk a little bit about the natural side of things. Um, I noticed all you guys don't use GMOs, and you try to use local... Ingredients: no corn, no high fructose corn syrups, um, and each of these products could very well have those product uh, high high fructose corn syrup. Yeah,
4: but my the corn syrup that I use does has have GMOs.
2: Oh, okay. Yeah. So, okay. So, when you were talking about labeling, though, and yeah, sorry. I mean,
3: there's a there's. A, GMO, you can actually get certified now to be officially label your product Mm -hmm. GMO-free. And it's great. It just takes time because you actually have to, in order to do it, you have to provide documentation of every single ingredient that's in your product and documentation of its source and that it's actually also
2: GMO-free.
5: Does it it cost money too?
2: uh, Yes. And uh, none of you label organic because, you know, as we know, there's a lot of hoops and, you know, things to jump through to get that certification. Um, and this is just another step in the way. Um, but, you know, it sounds like both of your, sorry, all three of your ingredients are as natural as it comes and local. So, um, yeah, congrats. For that. You know, I found yes. this
5: This reminded me of um, one of the picklers I spoke with, um, you know, I think faced some of these, um, other issues, too, where he wanted he was, he was wanted to expand beyond the local farmer's market, and um, he wasn't certified organic, even though he knew that the farm where he got stuff from was organic. But because of the additional costs and, and all this um, paperwork that you have to go through, he had to make that decision. Do I sever ties with this one close farmer who he'd been working with since the beginning, or do I – Source from someone else just so I can have organic on my label, and it's and it's really hard because it, it is expensive and it's manpower that you guys were just saying over the break that it's it's hard to find. So um, you know, it really puts I think producers in a in a difficult position sometimes.
2: And I, uh, many other things as you scale up become a little bit more difficult. I recall Lena you used to pick the your fruit um, by hand, and obviously that's that's not going to last <laughs> and if you're going to grow. As time goes on, what are some other challenges of growing? But actually,
3: I think that's also a cool thing too, though. About growth is like, and it probably someone like Seamus mentioned this as well, but and you experienced this, I'm sure, too, um, with your hot sauce, uh, which is that the cool thing about growing is you maybe don't have the same relationship. So I, yes, I do not pick my fruit myself anymore from my friend's farms upstate, but I do. Uh, I am able to support networks like um, Green Market like Growing Y C C has a wonderful wholesale program, and a few different and supporting things
2: like that. There's a few different cooperative there's, there's um, more buying options, outlets, yeah, it sounds like, yeah, for you to get that that product yeah. that you need. Yeah. And Brian, what about you? How long are you going to be able to get um, all the peppers you need as you scale up from a rooftop farm in Brooklyn?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's been Our it's Queens. been tough. I mean. Um, so we've been working with them sort of every year. We do a seasonal batch, um, and it really that's all it can be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, New York obviously gets cold in the winter, so you can't grow all the time.
2: Um, Limited edition exactly. batch, yeah. So
1: we do it annually. We love to support them and what they're doing. Um, but otherwise, you know, we try to work as, as closely as we can directly with farms all across mm-hmm. the country. Um, generally, you know, down south, um, and uh, you know it's been it's been interesting. I think like you talked about the growth. When we first started, everything was very expensive, and we we didn't know if we'd be able to make it happen. Oh. Um, and as we even just like a little bit of growth, um, really has brought the cost down to make it to a, way, a place where it looks like this can be a lot more sustainable for a lot longer. So. Oh,
5: fantastic! Really Is that exciting. because yeah. of economies of scale? That's why. Yeah,
1: and they're they're you know surprisingly small. Um, you know, it was it was a. Initially, we you know we bought it by the case. We sort of went into Whole Foods and said. Can we just have ten pounds of chilies? Um, mm-hmm. and then we we kept going from there and then mm-hmm. now we go direct from the farm and we, you know, hire a refrigerated truck to, to drive it up from Florida or North Carolina and and that's uh, you know. And that's to, your Yeah, we didn't have to go too much farther to, for to your actually get that. So.
2: Only. And Mercy, you reached, you had a milestone, um, breaking in a new space of your own to produ- to produce in.
4: Yeah, we used to do everything by hand, uh, including pulling the taffy, um, cooking it, cooling it, cutting and wrapping it. And um, and then we had a co-packer um, mm-hmm. for a while in uh, Maine. And um, and then we were able to buy machinery, confectionery machinery to, uh, to cut and wrap it. To pull the taffy? To pull it and to cut and wrap it. The cut and wrapper is actually the most important piece of the, uh, equipment. We could, between me and um, another woman that works for me, we would be able to cut and wrap four pieces in a minute and now um we can cut and wrap a 100 wow so oh in a minute yeah oh big yeah our margins were like i was like okay (laughs) oh thank god
2: (laughs) is it like willy wonka when you walk into this i just really want to see that machine and the (laughs) the i have pictures of it pulling
4: it's awesome it is it's like i have a candy factory it's pretty rad so fun (laughs) Well, congrats on that. Uh, now,
2: scalability, um, that's very exciting. And where do you hope to go with this now that um, now that you, you can produce more, you have your own space? It's probably very expensive to get that investment.
4: Yeah, it was. Um, I think it was really important for us to come back to be able to actually manufacture in Brooklyn, which I think is a really mm. hard thing to do, especially when you have a co-packer, um, to be able to like make that decision and put that money in. Um but this is where I live, and, and also it enables us to be able to make um, different flavors. Like, we have a pumpkin pie that's seasonal um, with our co-packer. We weren't able to um, create new flavors, oh, really. Oh, I see.
2: So you had to hand off your recipes and sort of be like, take care of my babies. And
4: yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and we, had to, we weren't able to sort of control the manufacturing process as much, obviously, as we right, are now. Right. Um, so stuff cons. is fresher. Um, it just it tastes better. Um, Brian, do you use a co-packer or is
2: this something that you uh, we produce? we do. We mm-hmm. do use
1: a co-packer and, uh, he's been great. Um, so the, yeah. It's still, so that's been it's still a, good... a very manual process. I think the interesting thing about a co-packer is you sort of imagine that they have all this machinery everywhere
4: mm-hmm. and it
1: really turns out they just have a lot of people. Um, so everything <laughs> mm-hmm. really manages to keep that same kind of handmade mm-hmm. touch. Um, that's the same as when A and B first started.
2: So it's like their staff or my staff. Exactly. And, uh, Lena, do you have your staff? Yeah. We don't use co-packers. We do
3: it all in Brooklyn at our little factory. So I have my own staff that do it.
2: Mm-hmm. And um, how do you imagine what what the next... Uh, what do you imagine would be the next step from here if you were to expand?
3: Um, you know, um, probably yeah. at some point in the next year or so we'll... Uh, Probably expand into a larger space, just as we uh, we now distribute all over the country. So um, we'll probably, you know, we just we're just growing more and more, and as we get more and more distribution, we have to make more and more jam. Mm-hmm. <laughs> than we have when our you know our space is now like jam up to the ceiling. So uh, yeah, I mean that's like the natural evolution of it, and that's what makes it difficult about making product in in New York City is it's just incredibly expensive.
2: So. Mm-hmm. Um, Suzanne, when you're researching this book and you're just, you know, as you were saying, word of mouth, finding out about these, all these different, uh, you know, distilleries, one after another, were you surprised about how
5: just how large this movement was? Um, the more you looked into it. I, I and, was amazed and I, I was amazed that every um, urban area and I'm sure rural areas that I didn't make it to had um, this, this strong community happening and I was also amazed at what was being produced in a small space. I'm, I'm sure if I if I went into your jam factory I would see, the um, have that same realization as when I went in and I um, chatted with uh, with, with uh, Brooklyn and Brian where I walked in and I thought oh this is a cute little factory they're doing a couple jars here and there <laughs> and then he told me he was distributed in multiple countries and I thought oh my gosh, I can't believe that every single jar is hand-packed. Um, you know, somebody on his team touches every single jar, every single pickle that goes into that jar. And, and it makes its way all around the world. And I think that's so amazing what one person and on one really small team can do in a relatively small space. And I thought that was amazing. And I, I'm, still, I'm still astounded. If I walk into your jam factory, I'll be like, what, really? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's really, really cool. So, yeah.
2: So from my side of it, as a consumer, it looks like this movement is ever growing. There's more and more companies making different products, new products very interesting ones, too. Um, do you see this as something that is going to continue growing is that what you came across I
5: yeah I think so and I asked uh, I asked all the artisans who I spoke with um, where they thought their industries were going as well and pretty much everyone said yeah I think we're gonna continue to grow like they're expanding and at the same time and there's more folks people are joining exactly. at different stages that and are expanding they all thought okay there's gonna be some shakedown you know especially the it's easy to compare say the distillers um, to the um, to the craft beer uh, industry from a decade or so earlier and what happened with that industry was there was a bunch of people who entered the market and then some of them made it and did really well. Some of them made it at a middle level and continue there and some of them didn't make it. And so that's kind of the thinking is that there will be a shakedown um, with all of these new people joining the market. But um, but many of them will will succeed because more and more people are interested in buying these products.
2: Have, have, we, have we witnessed a shakedown a little bit? Have we seen some, some falling? I think so. <laughs> I mean, small business
4: is mm-hmm. tough, man. Yeah. And it's especially tough here. So yeah, people fall off. I've seen 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 some mergers, too,
2: which is kind of cool. Yeah, I mean, it's Uh,
4: definitely,
2: you know, we're scrappers.
4: Changes. (laughs) (laughs) All
2: right, so we only have a couple minutes left, but um, Suzanne, um, thank you so much for joining us. And I just wanted to get a last sort of, like, bite from each of you about why you're doing what you're doing, even though it's so tough, as you just said, Marissa.
4: Um, I think small business is just really rad. I think that it's a lot of work, um, but, I mean, who wouldn't want to have their own candy factory you know, <laughs> for, for reals? Like, this is what I do all day. I can't Maybe, wait like, to see it. Yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah you guys right on. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, I mean, for A&B American Style, we, you know, we like to believe that we're doing something bigger. We're part of this really important movement that's helping people reconnect with their food. Um, so right now we make uh, our spicy pepper sauces from all fresh ingredients. We don't use any added sugar. It's very little salt. There's obviously no artificial preservatives. Um, you know we hope we can grow and help support more uh, more organic farmers to make the transition um, and, and help, help our them production keep
2: producing. What exactly. They're doing. Just yeah. sort of
1: encourage the food system to be to be um, you know better positioned to kind of be more sustainable going forward. Um, and that's our you know that's our idea. And I I hope that we can I hope that we can continue to to push on that mission.
2: Awesome.
3: Uh, Ditto what he just said. And uh, yeah, I think also we, I hope to continue having fun doing what I do as well. I think that's part of the pleasure of owning your own business is it's tough at times, Um, but it's also really fun
2: it beats your last and day job yeah yeah <laughs> and
3: it's like really and the connections you build and the relationships and just and even learning like constantly having new hurdles that you have to overcome is interesting mm. it certainly keeps life interesting totally.
2: so. <laughs> all right well thanks for keeping the shelves interesting
5: and <laughs> thank you so much. I also want to say I've I've already um, invited everyone in this room to um to my I'm hosting a small batch pop up at Jimmy's Number Forty Three on November fifth from six to eight p.m. Um, so come on down and buy their products. I'm sure you can buy them many other places as well. But um but yeah it'll be it'll be really fun. And you'll have books for sale there and too? there'll be books for
2: sale of course. Excellent. So check out the history of small batch some more. Thanks so much, Suzanne. Thank and you. And thanks everyone. We'll see you next week on Eat Your Words.